So that's my announcements. How about we jump into the Word of God this morning? Uh, as you may know, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Daniel. Today we are in the second part of chapter 2. Two weeks ago, Tim, pre uh, Tim preached for uh, the first 23 verses of this chapter. And then last week, he took time to zoom into verses 20 to 23. We saw one of God's attributes, and that is uh, the fact that he is eternal. And that's what we talked about uh, last week. Today, we're going to continue with the story of chapter 2. Um, but before that, I figured I would give you a little recap of where we are. Uh, you know, previously in chapter 2, if you will. So that you know what's going on here. Chapter number one, uh, a few weeks back, uh, we saw that after a long period of disobedience and rejection of God, God gave the Israelites into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So the king picked the best of the young men of Israel and he brought them to Babylon as exiles where he wanted to train them in the way of the Babylonians. He fed them his food. He gave them the best Babylonian education. He even changed their names. He was by all means trying to turn them into Babylonians. Among these young men, there were four men who sought to honor God by refusing to be transformed by the Babylonian culture. These young men were, of course, Daniel and his three friends. Later in chapter 2, which we saw two weeks ago, we see that Nebuchadnezzar had a crazy dream, right? I don't know about you, but I've, there's this one thing I've learned about dreams and that is the fact that even though I have some pretty weird dreams myself, nobody cares about my dreams. Uh, every time I say, you know what, I had this interesting dream, I can see people's eyes just glaze over because they don't care, you know. And so, but the thing is, if you're the most powerful man alive, people have to care, okay. And so that's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream and he decided everybody needs to know about it. This was a dream that actually really shook him to the core. So what he did is he called all the wise men of Babylon, all the Chaldeans, and asked them not only that they interpret the dream, but first they had to tell him what the dream was. You see, Nebuchadnezzar knew they were a fraud, and so they, he knew that they were going to say whatever he wanted them to say. And so he tells them, okay, I want you to interpret the dream, but first you got to tell me what the dream is. Now, this request was obviously impossible. Not only was it impossible, but the consequences of not um, meeting his needs in that moment were actually tragic. Nebuchadnezzar tells them that if they are unable to tell him his dream, he would tear them limb from limb. It was a little dramatic, Nebuchadnezzar. And so while all the Chaldeans are freaking out, right? They have to, they have to uh, find out what his dream was. They know that it's impossible to tell him there is no man on earth that can do this. They're freaking out. They're about to be murdered by Nebuchadnezzar. And at that moment, Daniel hears of this. He was considered one of these wise men. And so he goes to the king and he asks for some time. Now, he doesn't know the dream yet. He has no idea what the interpretation of the dream is. But he knows the God who gives dreams. So he goes home. He tells his buddies to pray with him. And then goes to bed. Daniel wakes up with an interpretation. And the first thing he does is to praise God. And that's where we stopped Last week, we read verses 23, 20 to 23, which charges Daniel, you know, his outpour of worship, magnifying God, talking about how he is, and uh, this is where we are today. And so this morning, would you read, uh, with your, would you stand for the reading of the word? We're going to read verses 24 to 29, and that's where we will start. 
And this is the word of the Lord. It says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to, the king, to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed these days are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. And that is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revelation. We thank you, Father, that you have spoken. Father, we pray that as I, I pray, Father, that this morning, that as I try to teach from this, that it would be you who speaks through me, Lord. I pray that if there is anything that I say that does not align with the truth of Scripture, Lord, I pray that it would fall down and be forgotten. I pray, Father, that you would make us a people with the sermon, Father, that are able to hear your word and obey it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, this morning I want to start by showing you a contrast. There is a contrast here between two kings. We see the king, uh, that the king of the universe is mighty, and that the kings of the world are hopeless without him. Um, as we unpack the book of Daniel, we will see how God is sovereign. He is sovereign above all things. And we'll see also that the kings of this world are not. You see, the kings of this world are limited. They're limited in their power. They're limited in their scope. And they're even limited in their authority. Here, I want you to see the contrast between two kings. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man alive at the time, and the king of the universe. I want you to see that one king dreams, and the other one is the king that gives those dreams. I believe Tim mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. But there is a king who has a dream. There is another king, as Daniel says, that gives dreams. Our king, the king of the universe, is in control of all things. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. This dream rattles him to the core. See, Nebuchadnezzar is the recipient of a dream. And this dream was actually sovereignly given to him by the king of the universe. This reminds us that as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar was, he was still very limited in his power. And he was very vulnerable. Nebuchadnezzar did not like having a dream and not knowing what to do with it. In something as simple as our dreams, God reveals how vulnerable we truly are, even if we sit in a throne. So the second thing I want you to notice is that one king, Nebuchadnezzar, has limited authority. The other king, the king of the universe, has ultimate authority over all things. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man alive. He had more authority than any other person in the world, but his authority was borrowed. For this, I want you to jump ahead 
with me to verses 37 and 38. And I want you to see what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. He says to him this. He says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. This is uh, me jumping into the interpretation, but do you see, do you see what I mean? Nebuchadnezzar had a little power. He had power, he had might, he had glory. But all of these things were borrowed. God had given them to him. He had authority over the children of men and even over the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven. And you know, the, the, the wording here is reminiscent of the language God uses with Adam in Genesis. God is giving, he has given Nebuchadnezzar a lot of power. But all this power, as much authority as Nebuchadnezzar has, it was all borrowed. It didn't come from him. It was given to him by a greater king, the one who has all authority in earth and in heaven, the king whose authority is not borrowed or given. You see, God's authority is inherent and intrinsic. It is woven into the very fabric of his being. God does not have authority because someone gave him authority. His authority does not arise from an external source or from an external decree, but it flows naturally from his infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. God holds all the authority in the universe. And sure, he gives and lends authority to people, but authority ultimately rests in God. The implications of this are huge. What's so important for us to notice is that Daniel recognizes this God-given authority. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was by all means an evil man. He was an authoritarian and a narcissist. This was made obvious when we saw him throw a fit when the Chaldeans couldn't guess what his dream was. He was arrogant. He was insecure. He was so insecure that he weaponized the authority that he was borrowing. Isn't that true? He, he weaponized that authority. He threatened the Chaldeans when he asked them to do something impossible. But you know what? That's not really that surprising. Because when you believe that you are the center of the universe, when you believe this life is all about you, you too will weaponize any little amount of power you have, any authority you have, and you will use it to do whatever you need to get your way. And still, Daniel saw this. He saw how proud Nebuchadnezzar was. He recognized that his authority was borrowed. And you know what he did? He submitted to this man by approaching him with respect. Daniel didn't, didn't honor and respect the king because the king was great or because he deserved his respect. Daniel honored the king with respect because he knew that the king of kings doesn't make mistakes. Daniel's theology didn't lead him to outrage, but to biblical submission. By submitting to an evil authority, Daniel showed his trust in God, the real and only king. Now, i got to recognize, this kind of rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? To recognize the fault of our authority and to still choose to submit feels pretty anti-American, doesn't it? Church, Daniel is a good model for us. 
November is around the corner, and thank you, thank you, uh, Richard, for that prayer. November is around the corner, and to be quite honest, I'm not thrilled about the options that are in front of us. And yet, by submitting to our current authorities and to whomever, God, uh, to, to whomever becomes our next president, we show trust, not on them, but on God. As we'll discuss later, our agreement with our governing authorities shouldn't lead us to isolating from our community. They shouldn't lead us to stop caring, but submission to them, as difficult and frustrating as it may be, reflects our theology and our trust in the one who appoints and removes kings. Tim said a few weeks ago that the statement like, uh, statements like, not my president, are theological statements. Our theological statements that reflect our rejection of God's sovereignty. So let us be careful with how we handle evil authorities. No matter what you think about our authorities, be careful how you handle them. Here's the next thing I want you to see. The difference between these two kings. One worries about the future. The other one holds the future in his hand. Read verse 29 with me again, and I want you to see this. Daniel says in verse 29, To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. Do you see that? Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man alive, lies awake at night wondering about the future. He doesn't know what's next. As powerful as he is, Nebuchadnezzar was very limited in his scope. He doesn't know that in only a few chapters he will be humiliated and acting like a beast. Nebuchadnezzar was wondering about the future. I imagine that as the king, he was thinking about what came next. He is the most powerful man on earth, but it seems like, to borrow from Augustine, his heart was still restless. You see, that's a problem with living our lives with our eyes only in this kingdom. It's never enough. This world is never enough. This world overpromises and always underdelivers. What we build today might be gone tomorrow. That's the nature of our world. So let me ask you this morning, do you, like Nebuchadnezzar, have a hard time sleeping at night, thinking about tomorrow? You know, that's human nature, to worry about the things we can't handle, to worry about the things that we have no control over. But in Matthew 6, Jesus offers us the antidote to anxiety when he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus knew that our nature is to find our safety by looking at our own little kingdom, by looking at our own little strength, by looking at, our all, at, at all our resources. And that's where we tend to find safety, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar was obviously thinking about his kingdom here. As he's lying awake at night, he's thinking about his kingdom because as we'll see in a minute, his dream was precisely about the future of his kingdom. And that robbed him of his sleep. That bothered him because he had no control over the future. Jesus tells us not to be anxious about tomorrow, but instead to seek first the kingdom of God. Can I ask you this morning, what are you looking at for safety? What are you looking at to cure your anxiety, to calm your nerves? What is it the first thing that you look at? 
Is it the White House? Is it your career advancement? Do you maybe look at your bank account to consider your future? Do you look at the future of our country and let that rule how you feel today? Church, if there's anything else that you're looking at other than Christ, lay it down at the feet of the true king. The one who holds the future in his hands. Church, let us avert our eyes from the things of this world. Let us instead seek first the kingdom of God because that is the antidote to our anxiety today. But I want us to keep reading. I want us to read verse 30. Chapter 2, verse 30. And here I want you to see that there are only two paths in life. One that leads to pride and one that leads to humility. In verse 30, we're going to see Daniel's response. Daniel says this, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. That's cool. Daniel's saying, hey, I got it. I know what's happening. But listen to this. He says, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to God and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. In the two chapters of Daniel that we've read, I think we've gotten a pretty good picture of the type of man Nebuchadnezzar is. He is powerful. He is an ambitious king. He is insecure. He is concerned about his kingdom and his own glory to the point that he threatens violence to those who might be an obstacle for him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is the center of the universe. But you know, since the fall, the way that we see ourselves has been distorted. Since Adam and Eve bought the lie that they could be like God, this has become the default of our broken hearts. And this is the lens through which we see life. In all of us, there is a whisper in our souls that tells us that we are the center of all things. Sin distorts our view of ourselves and our view of God. Because of sin, our hearts magnify our view of ourselves and minimize our view of God. Because of our sin, we think we're great. And we think that maybe God isn't that great. Because of our sin, we think we are the center of it all. Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as great, but Daniel was different. He knew it wasn't about him. He says, I have the interpretation, but it's not because I'm smarter than other people. It's because God is in control and because he's speaking to you. Church, there's a sharp contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's response in verse 30. While Nebuchadnezzar wants to make himself great, Daniel understands that there is only one who is truly great, and that's not him. When Daniel could have boasted and taken credit, he instead deflects all credit to God. This was not only a sharp contrast in the, with the world then, but it remains a contrast with our culture today. In the middle of a self-promoting society that we live in, knowing where we stand with God frees us from the pressure of building our own self-image. The Christian seeks not to make much of himself, but to make much of God. In Christ, we are free from the pressure of having to curate our own image of brand or brand. And that is precisely what we see Daniel do here. He's saying, it's not because I'm great. It's because God is great. 
I want you to see something else here. I want you to see how Daniel shows humility in his differences with others. One of the ways we see Daniel show humility is by the way he responds to those who disagree with him. Have you noticed that? Daniel will show us time and again as we continue to read through the book, and you, you, you'll see this in the next few chapters, he shows us time and again that his submission to Nebuchadnezzar was not based on fear. It wasn't that he just wanted to be perceived as nice. It wasn't that he wanted to be loved. In the next few years, we will see how both Daniel and his friends were able to submit to their authorities all the way up to where their obedience to them was at odds with the obedience of God. But because they knew God, they showed humility in the way they interacted with the government, in the way they interacted with the world. And church, I believe this is precisely what the Bible calls us to do. Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, I have seen this, world, this worldly idea that the way we, uh, to engage with those that disagree with us is by responding with outrage or by maligning them. Talking about the world or those that we disagree with as our enemy instead of our mission field. That is not the way of Christ. You know, one of those um, passages in the gospel that has become pretty popular and an object of memes and Christian culture in the last few years is the, the story of Jesus flipping tables. Right? Hey, Jesus also flipped tables, right? You know, there is a story where Jesus flips tables and he pulls a whip. And though this story is true, I think we make too much of it. I think we're missing the point. And it's not about the flipping of the tables. It's not about pulling out the whip. First of all, Jesus flipped the tables in the temple, not outside the temple. He was angry and rightfully so, not against those godless Romans, not against the godless society out there, but he was upset precisely against those that were inside the table. Who, because they were acting like the world, they were hindering the Gentiles from coming into the temple. They had become an obstacle to the Gentiles. And that made Jesus rightfully angry. In the couple of instances when we see Jesus' righteous anger, that anger was not directed towards the world, but towards those that, like the Pharisees, like the scribes, and like other hypocrites, were becoming an obstacle for people to come to him. Church, I fear that with our outrage, we are acting not like Jesus when he flipped tables in the temple, but more like Peter when he cut the ear of Malchus, the Roman soldier who came to capture Jesus. Do you remember that story? I was actually reminded this of this story this week, by actually by this book that I'm reading. And in it, Jaron Wilson, the, the author, says a couple of things about this story. If you don't know this story, let me just give you a, a brief summary. Uh, after praying in the garden, uh, Jesus with his, with his disciples and, he, uh, and the Roman soldiers, led by Judas, one of his disciples, come to capture him. To capture him. And Peter, who is a hothead, pulls out his sword and he cuts Malchus's ear. Right? I always wondered whether he was going for the ear or for the head, because that says a lot about Peter. But anyways, here's what happens. Peter chops the ear off. But here's what 
Wilson says about this story. He says, here's Peter's passion. So here, here, I'm sorry. Here, Peter's passion gets the best of him again. But was it really, but what is really the driving passion? Protecting Jesus? Maybe. More immediately, however, we may think of Peter's actions as being driven by a persistent worldly conception about the kingdom of God. On the surface, it may seem like Peter is doing a good thing, a sincere thing, defending Jesus. But it's really his own self-centered agenda at work, his own ambition, his own misunderstanding and misuse of the notion of the kingdom of God. Later, Wilson says, it has the appearance of affection, the appearance of, fat, of passion, but it, has a self, but it has self at the center. And church, I fear that I see this very, this very same thing happening in the church. When people claim to be defending Jesus, when they claim that it's a passion to defend Jesus, a passion of, of gatekeeping the gospel. But in reality, it seems like it may be about themselves. If you remember the rest of the story, Jesus picks up the ear and he heals Malchus. He does that as if to remind us that the kingdom of God is not built with the sword, but by laying down our lives. What I'm trying to communicate today is that there is a right way to stand for what you believe. Just make sure that it is driven by faith and righteousness, not fear or self-righteousness. Church, we are called to submit to our authorities all over the New Testament. This, however, does not mean that we comply with everything our authorities say or do. There is also a good way and a bad way to submit, by the way. We don't submit, we don't submit out of fear or out of a desire to be liked, we submit in faith, knowing that as we submit to our governing authorities, we are submitting to God. Glenn Scribner says this, we must put to death the idols of respectability and niceness, but in their place let us bear the spiritual fruit of true wisdom and love. Church, we are called to submit. We are called to submission, but there is also a right way to submit and a wrong way to submit. If you're submitting out of fear of the world, out of fear of being disliked by those in the world, that's not the right way. That's not the right reason to submit. We submit not out of fear, but out of faith that we serve a God that puts the gods that are, I mean, the, the, the kings that are in this world. Well, how about we keep reading? I want us to read verses 31 to 45. And here, I want you to see another contrast. There are two kingdoms that are represented in this, in this dream. One that will fall and the other one that will stand forever. Verse 31 says this, it says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold its chest and arms of silver, its middle thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a gray mountain and filled the whole earth. 
This was a dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given where... Um, he has given, where, sorry, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as though the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with, uh, with clay. Verse 44. And in the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation Sure. So church, here we see Daniel giving the king the interpretation of his dream. First, he does what no wise man, no Chaldean could do, which was to describe the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. He tells them that he saw a great image, a statue that was by all means very impressive. The head was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its middle uh, and thighs were made of bronze. The legs were of iron, and the feet were part iron and part clay. Then as Nebuchadnezzar is watching, again, he has no control over his dreams. He is just watching. And as he is watching, he sees how a rock that was not caught by, uh, by human hand, which is actually an important detail, uh, strikes that image, and it shatters it, starting from the feet all the way up. All the gold, the silver, bronze, and iron become uh, like chaff and dust, and he was blown away by the wind. Then in verse 36, Daniel gives the interpretation of this dream. He tells, he tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar that this is the dream of two kingdoms, as we will see. First, Daniel explains that the statue represents the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdoms to follow. He tells Nebuchadnezzar uh, that he is the head of fine gold. Which I'm sure at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is feeling pretty cool about it. Like, All right, I'm the head, fine gold, I like this. And he says that after his kingdom, other, uh, four other kingdoms would follow. And they were represented by silver, by bronze, iron, and clay. Now, it is generally accepted by scholars and theologians that these kingdoms are the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and the Romans. Here's the reality, we don't know. It actually makes sense, but we don't really know. Others argue that it may have been other empires, but the reality is that we just don't exactly know, and so we're not going to spend time trying to figure this out, okay? I just don't think that we should spend too much time guessing who kingdom is what, or finding where America is, um, 
I think what's important is the bigger picture. Because you see, the statue is comprised by a number of empires. Ultimately, this, this statue, even if it's several empires, it just represents one kingdom, and that is the kingdom of man. And it's interesting to note the trajectory of the kingdom of man. Because it seems like it's in a downward spiral, isn't it? About this, uh, a commentator says this. He says, far from journeying onward and upward until we finally reach the great city of man, we go from one transient kingdom to another, proceeding downward from gold to silver to bronze to iron, rather than in a positive direction. The final kingdom in the sequence is not only inferior in glory to the first, iron compared to gold, but inferior in unity as well. It is made of iron mixed with baked clay, an uneven mixture that cannot hold together. Church, even if technologically or even uh, in our level of comfort or even economically our nation is far superior to the Babylonian kingdom, from a heavenly perspective, as a society, we are regressing, not improving. This kingdom, as impressive as it may seem, will one day be nothing but dust. But there is a second kingdom. There is a better kingdom that we see in this dream. Here we see a rock that says that it's not cut by human hands. And this represents Jesus. We'll see it later that Jesus himself quotes this. This rock represents a kingdom that though it starts small, it will continue to grow until it is ultimately the only kingdom. One that endures forever. This kingdom is the culmination of human history. MLK famously said, We shall overcome because the arc of the, arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I believe he was right. But I would want to add to this this morning and say that the arc of history ultimately bends towards the kingdom of God. That's the direction we're headed. Everything in human history is pointing towards this. So the culmina- I mean, the culmination of, of, of human history is precisely not a better kingdom of man, but a kingdom of God. Where the kingdom of man will become dust, the kingdom of God will be established forever. And here, I'm going to uh, borrow from, from uh, Ian uh, Dugid. I don't know how you say his last name. Um, but this is a great news to those whose hopes and dreams are in tatters. This idea of a new kingdom coming, that is great news for those whose whose dreams are in tatters, for those whose hopes are broken, for those who are being crushed painfully under the boot of the kingdom of this world. This is great news. Because we need to remember that this world is not ultimate, that this shall pass. But this is also great news for those whose lives are going great. If life is going well for you today, it is important that you remember that this world is temporal. Because if we don't, we might spend ourselves, we must spend our lives building a kingdom that will one day be turned into dust. So the question this morning is, which kingdom are you spending yourself for? Which kingdom are you living for? The truth is that we are all living for something. We are all spending ourselves for a kingdom. Which kingdom are you spending yourself for? This is a question worth considering because one day, only one of them will stand.
How about we read verses 46 to 49? And here I want you to see that there's two responses to Revelation. One is confession, and the other one is transformation. Verse 46 and on says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's courts. So here I want you to see, first, that after the interpretation of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is floored. And he responds with words of praise. He has praise for Daniel, and he has praise for Daniel's God. Now, it is obvious to him that Daniel, that what Daniel said came directly from God. Because his lowercase gods were silent when he needed them. And you see, church, this is one of the dangers of having a God of your own making. This is when things like your truth, my truth, fall to pieces. Because if you serve a God of your own making, one that agrees with you in everything, there will be a time when you need him and he will not deliver you. If you serve a God of your own making, be careful. Because one day you'll need that God. And he'll be silent. So, Nebuchadnezzar, after hearing the interpretation, falls on his face and he praises God. The things that he says about God are true and good. The problem is that it appears that though he sees that God is true and real, he doesn't change the way he behaves. And he continues to live the same way. As we will see in the next chapters, he continues building his own kingdom and living for his own glory. Church, there is a great danger in confessing what is truth while not allowing it to, com- to, to transform and conform your heart. Remember that in his dealings with the Pharisees, Jesus' biggest problem with them was precisely the fact that even if the things that they confessed were true, their hearts were far from God. And let that be a warning to all of us. If you sit here Sunday after Sunday, hearing truth, saying, yeah, I agree with that. But you don't allow the truth to transform your heart. Let this be a warning to you. Church, confession is good. But confession by itself is not enough. Nebuchadnezzar confessed the greatness of God, but he kept living for himself. May the Lord protect us from being like that. Church confession is only good if it leads to transformation. Here again, we see the contrast in what happens with Daniel. After fearlessly interpreting the dream to the king, which I must say is not an easy task, God providentially puts Daniel in a strategic position. He puts him in a position of honor and power. Daniel, a godly man, living in exile in a hostile land, far from isolating himself from the culture 
or from his city, he gets to work. Nebuchadnezzar makes him ruler of the province of Babylon, and he immediately asks for his friends to join him. Church, you see, Daniel knew Babylon wasn't his ultimate home. He knew that a better kingdom was coming. But instead of crossing his arms, he does exactly what God had instructed the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. And for this, I want us to go to Jeremiah 29. Most of us are familiar with verse 11. You know, verse 11, that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Great verse. Pulled out of context way too often. Prior to that, after God tells them that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years, God says this to the people of Israel. He tells them, as they're in captivity in Babylon, He tells them, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And verse 7 says this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Church Daniel knew he had a future and a hope. He knew Babylon wasn't his home, but he got to work for the sake of his city, for the sake of his community, the community where God had planted him in that moment. Daniel and his friends spent themselves for the welfare of their city. And if life in the city, so even when life in the city put them in dangerous situations. You see, Daniel and his friends had such an impact in the people of Babylon, specifically in the wise men of Babylon and the Chaldeans, that 600 years later, a group of wise men would come to Bethlehem looking for the promised Savior. Church, the kingdom of man will pass away, and it will become like dust. But while we wait for the kingdom of God to be established, what is the Lord calling you to do? What is he calling you to seek, or how is he calling you to seek the welfare of your city? Church, we don't need to be placed in positions of power like Daniel and his friends. Now, I hope God would place some of you in positions of authority. But even if he doesn't, we should ask the question, how am I called to seek the welfare of my city? Where has God placed me to work for the sake of his kingdom? Church, God has placed us strategically in places where we can work for the sake of his kingdom. Make sure you don't despise where he has you now. Some of you are young men and women working jobs that you might not love. Build a kingdom there and do not despise it. Some of you might feel like you're maybe too young or maybe too old. But no, don't despise your season. We need you. Build a kingdom there. Some of you might be uh, working in your careers in the world. Build the kingdom there. Some of you might be at st uh, um, stay-at-home moms drowning in laundry, dishes, and homework. What a beautiful place to build the kingdom of God. Don't despise it. Are you a teacher? Are you a plumber? A barista? Whatever you may be, God has you there. Seek the welfare of the city, and build the kingdom of God. I'm going to call the worship team to come up here. But church, the message of this chapter 
is simple, if not easy, um, to remember. The kingdom of God is passing away, and a better one is coming. So I want to ask you one last time, as I close, which kingdom are you living for? Church, for us, the stone that Daniel speaks of is both in our past and in our future. Jesus identified himself as that rock in Luke 20, verses 17 and 18, when he said, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Church, Jesus is the rock. He's the Son of God in the flesh. And he came into this world, as Paul tells Timothy, to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you have never called out to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, today is the right day to do that. He's calling you. You might be thinking, well, surely not me. I'm a mess. Maybe if I get my act together in the future, I might come back to him. If that's you, can I plead with you this morning? Please don't be like Nebuchadnezzar, who saw the truth, who saw who God truly was, but kept living for himself. It's true. Your life might be a mess. But that is precisely what qualifies you to come to Christ. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Church, at this time, we're going to respond to the word in song, but in a moment, we're going to come back to celebrate this rock and the salvation that he brought. And so if you don't yet have your elements, uh, please make sure you grab one from the back, because we're going to be celebrating communion in just a moment. But how about we respond to the Lord in song.